Hello and welcome to episode 76 of the BOSS podcast. I am Kirk Bailey and today I am bringing you a conversation with BOSSCONF Fall 2021 and BOSSCONF USA 2019's Teresa Torres and what to expect in her new book and at her BOSSCONF Fall talk, Continuous Discovery Habits. Business of Software podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Teresa Torres is an internationally acclaimed author, speaker and coach. She teaches a structured and sustainable approach to continuous discovery that helps product teams infuse their daily product decisions with customer input. She's coached hundreds of teams and companies of all sizes from early stage startups to global enterprises. This fall, Teresa returns to BossConf to discuss how to address your organisational thinking with some of the habits and tools of continuous discovery to keep teams aligned across the business. In this conversation with Mark Littlewood, Teresa gives a taste of what to expect from her talk at BossConf Fall on the 27th to 29th of September 2021. Happy listening! Oh, hello, welcome. It's Mark Littlewood, the Business of Software podcast. Um, I'm really excited today to be joined by a special guest, Teresa Torres. Uh, Teresa spoke at BOSS 2019 uh, about uh, managing outcomes over outputs. That was a fantastic uh, talk and a lot of people kind of came back to uh, us afterwards and were like, yeah, it's also obvious, which um, is the mark of a great thing when uh, someone says, oh, so obvious, and actually you've been doing completely the opposite thing. So, uh, Teresa, I'm going to introduce in a minute, but uh, she's taken uh, some of the work that she's been doing there. She's been working for a very long time in, in product um, and has written a fantastic book. I'm hanging up, uh, holding up there, but uh, as this is audio, you won't see it. Um, so Continuous Discovery Habits, which came out in April. And I think it's fair to say it's already become the kind of, do you have Haynes manuals in the States? No, I it's don't think so. just like every car has a, a Haynes manual. It's how you kind of break it down and make it work. Um, ah. But uh, yeah, it's it's become the, the Bible or the the, the, the operating manual for uh, uh, continuous discovery and, and, and product discovery people. So without any further ado, welcome Teresa. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited to, um, to have you. Now everyone knows Teresa, but um, just imagine someone in the world hasn't. Who are you? What do you know? Why are you so amazing? I'll fill in the last bit if you want later. Yeah, great setup. So uh, I'm Teresa Torres. I work as a product discovery coach um, for people that don't know what that means, which is a large percentage of people. Um, it just means that I help um, teams that work on digital products make better decisions about what to build. Um, and the way that I do that is I teach them how to include their customer in the process and to make sure that they have a continuous feedback loop between the decisions that they're making and whether or not they're actually working for the people that they're trying to serve. Great. So we've got uh, less than sort of 30 minutes for this podcast. So um, I don't think we want to kind of dig into what continuous discovery is because and why it's better, because it's sort of pretty obvious, isn't it? 
Um, give me a give me a kind of a twenty second. Why why this is why this is a big difference? What's the what's the difference? Yes. So I think what we're learning in the age of the internet and being able to instrument our products and really measuring the impact of what we're building is we're just finding that we don't have very good ideas. We think they're great ideas, and then we launch them and they fall short of our expectations. And so we're starting to have a little bit more humility in that process and recognizing how can we learn before we launch it that it might not be the best idea ever. Um, and so continuous discovery is just how, how do we continuously get feedback along the way so we can throw our bad ideas away before we build them and we can turn our mediocre ideas into better ideas before we build them. Pretty straightforward. Um, all, all so easy. Well, thank you very much for uh, coming, <laughs> coming on the podcast and explaining it all. Um, like everything, it's much harder in real life, right? So um, it seems pretty obvious that if you're building products um, and you're, you're doing things, you should be thinking about customers and you should be thinking about what they're wanting. And in the world today, things are changing very quickly. New platforms arrive, different ways of doing things. Uh, Right. Companies go out of business because they've been doing something for a long time. Um, why? Why do people? Why? Why do companies find it so hard to take the whole concept on board? Yeah, the short answer is because humans are involved, right? Like it's ah. it's it's people. We make it messy. So I think um, a lot of this is just rooted in our biology, right? Like our brains. Are remarkably good at coming up with fast answers. This is this is the realm of Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky's work, right? We um, hear a question and we come up with a fast answer. We see a problem and we jump to the first solution. Um, and a lot of times our brains do a good job, but sometimes they fail us utterly. And so, especially for those of us that start to develop expertise in business and start to understand our markets and feel like we know our customers, it's really easy to feel like we know exactly what we should build. In fact, we hear this all day, every day in business, right? Well, just build this thing. It's just one more thing. It's one more button. It's just do this thing. Um, Have you met enterprise salespeople? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's not just salespeople, right? Product people do it. CEOs do it. Everybody, humans, humans do it. Um, and so I think... Uh, a good discovery process starts with some humility and recognizing we're going to be wrong more often than we're right. And mm. if that's true, how do we dig that out and uncover that so that we can fix it? And I think most humans struggle with humility, um, sadly. And I think you get a collection of humans in an organization and all the organizational context reinforces the fact that we're not good at humility. Right? Because in business, we reward people for having the right answers. We promote people when they've had a string of right answers. And so we're kind of stream, we're like swimming upstream against traditional business culture to come in and say, look, I actually don't have the right answer. But more importantly, I have a process for how we can get there. Mm. I think you're right, generally. I personally am the most humile person in the world. So, uh, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> You and me both. You and yeah, me both. yeah. <laughs> so you, uh, I mean, I guess there's a couple of couple of things about the the book, um, and I'm kind of coming at this from the perspective of people that know your know your work. If you don't know what um, Teresa's doing, she's got a, a an awesome blog, um, ProductTalk.org. Um, it's got videos, 
blog, content, research, links to other people's books. Um, it's a, 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 an amazing, amazing resource and uh, strongly suggest you go and check it out. But uh, also take, uh, take a moment and uh, grab the book because um, it is, a, it is a, an incredibly practical um, guide to what's going on. I think there's a lot of kind of product stuff that's very, very kind of rooted in the, the abstract. Um, and this is a, a really kind of solid how to, here are some, here are some things. Um, there are a couple of things you talk about in continuous um, discovery. Um, one, this concept of the product trio, and I'd love you just to talk to us about what that means and why there aren't more people involved in this. We'll obviously kind of come to that later. Yeah, so the idea of a product trio, people have called it lots of things. Some people call it triad, some people call it the three-legged stool, some people call it the three amigos. It's the same idea. It's how do we get a product manager, a designer, and a software engineer collaborating from the very beginning. So working together to make decisions about what to build. This is in contrast to what we used to do in a waterfall world where the product manager writes the requirements, the designer does the design, the engineers write the code. We're really looking at how do we reduce handoffs? How do we come up with better solutions? How do we make sure that everybody in that trio has firsthand exposure to the customer, understands the context they're building for, um, and are truly collaborating? And you know, we give lip service to collaboration, but true collaboration is still really rare. Mm. Um, and when you're talking about the customer, you mean the actual end user, you don't mean the sales team or the engineering team or yeah. the CEO. Um, yeah, so by end user, I mean the person, the people that your company is trying to serve. So, and I mean it broadly, so it could be your target customer, it could be key people who have currently bought your product, it could be prospects, it could be people who have never heard of your product, but they match your target customer profile. The other thing that I love, and I know you've talked about for a long time, are these uh, is the idea of the, the opportunity solution tree, which um, just give us a little bit of context about that and the, the way that continuous discovery uh, works and, and, and when you would use something like that in a, in a, in a process. Yeah, so the root of this is that when we're collaborating and especially cross-functionally, so what, what I mean by that is you have three people with very different backgrounds, probably very different perspectives, very different experiences to draw from. It's really hard to collaborate because we're working from a different set of knowledge individually. Mm. So one of the things I encourage trios to do right from the get-go is to start visualizing what they know um, so that they can start to align around a shared understanding because you're never going to come to agreement if you're all drawing from different knowledge. So the first work of a trio is just to surface what they already know, start to visualize it, build a shared understanding. Um, opportunity solution trees are one way to do that. So it really start, it, it assumes that you're focused on an outcome. So you're starting with mm. a metric you're trying to move and then it helps the team um, map out what are, so usually outcomes represent business value. This is what the business yeah. needs you to deliver. And then the opportunity solution tree helps you first map out the opportunity space, which is a little bit of jargon, but it really just means customer needs, customer pain points, customer desires. Mm -hmm. Collectively, it represents customer value, right? So it helps you get a big picture view of based on what we're hearing from customers, here's how we think we can deliver value to them. And then 
that sets the framework, the scope, if you will, for what solutions should we consider. And it aligns, and this is the piece that like writing the book really was solidified for me, is it aligns customer value with business value. So we're looking at the customer value that would in turn drive business value. Whereas at a lot of companies, we see this at odds, right? When you go read a newspaper article online and you get 25 ads before you can even read the first sentence. It's a classic oh. example of business value at odds with customer value. And then right? every sentence is one word on a different page with yeah. a little yeah. link yeah. going to the next thing. Because the they need thing. page views, like, yeah. right? <laughs> um, and we, see this, we can pick on um, journalists and they actually have a really hard industry to try to make their business model work. But we see this like in the US, I don't know if this is happening in the UK, all our hotels like have these secret resort fees that you don't see at the time of booking. Like when you go to check in, they're like, oh, by the way, we have a $35 resort fee. And I'm like, you're a hole in the wall motel in the middle of the desert, what's your resort? And they're like, oh, we have ice machines. Okay, how about if wow. I don't use your ice machines, I'll keep my $35, right? It's just, <laughs> you see these businesses do really sneaky behavior and it's because they haven't resolved the tension between how they're gonna create business value and how they're gonna create customer value. And the opportunity solution tree is a way to help align that, but it also helps the trio align around a shared understanding. It helps them visualize their thinking so they can make better decisions. It's a really great tool for communicating with stakeholders. What are you learning? Um, I, I've been working with it for the last five years. I developed it in 2016. And it really, it solves a lot of the challenges that teams have with discovery, which is discovery is this messy process, right? We don't know what we're gonna learn before we learn it. We're gonna throw away a lot of ideas and it really helps them kind of keep track of what have we tried? What should we try next? Where are we in this messy, mm. messy process? Can you give us a, an example of a situation where you've used an opportunity tree to solve a messy problem? Yeah, Light so this is- That you're allowed to talk about. The opportunity solution tree is really just a reflection of how I naturally think. Um, so I often think in trees. Um, in my own business, my outcome is to increase the number of product trios that are adopting a continuous cadence to discovery. And that's a funny outcome because there's really no way for me to measure it. Um, but it is sort of my North Star metric. And I do have an opportunity solution tree for that. And so for me, the customer value, um, looking at the opportunity space, I have, uh, I have two primary customers that I'm serving. The obvious one is on the consulting side, the head of product who's trying to train their team. So I have a VP of product, a chief product officer who's saying, um, I've drank the Kool-Aid, how do I get my teams working this way? And then I have another customer that's an individual contributor. Maybe they don't work at a company that has that head of product. And, but they're saying, regardless of how my organization works, I really wanna develop my individual discovery skills. Um, and then I have a lot more detail around what are those needs, right? So for a, a head of product, they have a lot of needs around how do I get my CEO on board? How do I set good outcomes for my teams? How do I develop my team's skills? Um, on the individual side, it's, I don't know what I don't even know, right? Mm. Um, I need to get better at interviewing. I need to get better at, so there's sort of different needs at the, at the leadership level than at the individual contributor level. And then I look at first, where do I want to play? So for a long time, I focused on that head of product branch. Like I was a consultant and consultants sell the heads of product. That's where the big ticket work is, right? It's also sure. where the messy procurement nightmares are. Um, 
And so for a long time, I sold big ticket coaching to heads of product. In the last couple of years, I've really been drawn to this indiv individual contributor side as well and trying to serve the little guy who maybe doesn't have an opportunity because their head of product hasn't um, mm. drank the Kool-Aid. And that's what's really built my, I've built the Product Talk Academy, um, which is just an academy with a whole bunch of online um, courses and training options for the individual. Um, and I, I don't know that I would have had that clarity of my market without taking the time to map out the opportunity space. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, and it's uh, you've got a load of good stuff going on um, at the Academy. And we caught up a little while ago um, and we're actually talking about what business software have been doing with online masterclasses and, and your masterclasses. And I have to say, we could have copied each other. I mean, in terms of the way that we've kind of delivered and, and the format. Um, I I don't know when the pandemic is going to be en uh, ending, but I'm pretty sure that we won't be going back to take a day in the Holiday Inn and uh, listen to a lecture and get drunk the night before and uh, all that sort of stuff. But yeah. Some some really cool stuff coming out of uh, you know that evolution, and you yeah you've got a really really well thought through um, process. It's really uh, very impressive. Yeah, it's been interesting because I've sort of always sold something that's a little orthogonal to the industry. Mm. So when I when I'm mostly focused on coaching, here's how my sales calls went. Somebody would call me and say, "Hey, will you do a workshop for my teams?" And I would mm. say, "Okay, well we don't do workshops, and here's why." And the reality is, is that like you can get your whole whole team in a room for two days and I can speak at them and give them exercises and they can walk away and give me a 10 out of 10 on an NPS survey, but it's not going to, it's not likely to change their behavior. So is that really the outcome I'm going for? For me, it's not like I really, my goal is to change the way your teams work. And so mm. coaching was one of the best ways I knew how to do that. If you give me your team for 12 weeks and we work in the context of your work, their behavior will change. As long as your organization is not putting up obstacles every step of the way, your team will change. Um, on the course side, I've really been thinking about how do I make that available for individuals? Mm. And so I started by selling individual workshops and doing these public two-day events. And I quickly ran into the same problem. Like you can't come to a two-day workshop and change the way that you work. And so COVID really accelerated my thinking around this. We, we now teach that as a six-week class. We meet two hours a week. We encourage our students to apply what they're working, what they're learning to their own work in the week mm. in between. And I think there's again, a lot of biology behind this. We need time to synthesize. We need time to yeah. let things incubate and to sleep on it. Like literally your brain remembers things by sleeping and all the neurons in your brain yeah. revisiting what happened over the course of the day. Like we have research on this um, and you don't get that in a two day workshop. And what we get online is there's more breathing room. Like oh, I man, can yeah. give every team feedback. I can't do that in a two day workshop. There's one of me and 40 of them, mm. but online I have a week to give everybody feedback. Um, so I really love that um, COVID fo forced this and I'm I'm sold on learning over time rather than this fire hose all at once. Yeah, it's true. And I think the other thing about online is you can have very, like very engaged, very conversational sessions mm -hmm. and discussions. But you know that lecture that you give at the beginning of the day when everyone's kind of waking up and waiting for the Advil to kick in? Or, <laughs> you know what? 
they've had that before. It's online. They watch it before they before they come. You can, and if people don't understand it, they can actually do a little bit of bit of work, uh, think about the stuff that, and then come with the questions at the end. Because then the other thing is when you're when you're giving the talk to to frame things up at the beginning. There's always someone that's kind of oh please. I've got, yeah. and you just don't, you don't get through it. So there are so many ways that uh, the online stuff is uh, much, much more powerful for this sort of stuff. I think the other thing that's really important too is that like historically with training and education, we have this, the teacher teaches model. And the problem mm. with that is it's this model that like, I'm going to give you knowledge. That's just not how it works, right? Like you have to be ready and willing to take knowledge and to create your own knowledge. Yeah. And so when a company brings in somebody to teach a workshop, there's this assumption that everybody on the team at the same time is ready to receive the knowledge and that they're ready to receive it in that format. And when does that ever happen? Never, right? Whereas with these more flexible formats, you can tell your team, you choose when to do this program when it best fits with your work schedule, mm -hmm. right? Because you don't need everybody to go through the experience at the same time. And I think that's really critical because you need people to be receptive to learning and to drive mm -hmm. their own learning process. Yeah. So I think you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. And I love that long-term thing. I think sort of separating the stuff into chunks and giving people chance to think and sometimes people do a bit of homework or just actually let the let the ideas percolate in a, um really good it's also a very good it's a much more effective way of getting people into like the third word of your book <laughs> that we haven't really kind of mentioned habits right i mean yeah. habits are the really really critical thing here um well the, the, this kind of the, the principle, the idea is very straightforward, but it's going to be the habits that really make a, a, a difference. Talk to me a little bit about um, the habits that people need to kind of think about getting into and some of the challenges they have and some of the some of the ways you can kind of get over them. Yeah, so I was really influenced by um, uh, Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein. So they're the authors of Nudge. And they talk a lot about choice architecture, but they really, one of the key principles in that book is make it easier for people to do the behavior that's good for them than to not do that behavior. And so as I was starting to develop my coaching curriculum and definitely the content in the book, I started to think about how do I make it easier for a product team to engage with customers than to not do so. Mm. And that led to things like in the book, I talk about building a continuous interviewing habit. Teams should be talking to customers every single week. And okay, how do I make that easier for them to do that than to not do it? They need to automate the recruiting process. They need to show up to work and have an interview on their calendar without them having to do anything because they're either gonna conduct that interview or they're gonna have to call the customer and cancel. So what's more likely to happen? You're more likely to interview, right? And that's, I tried to permeate that through the whole book is we all know, most of us, we've been to a conference, we've read the other books, we've, we've read the blogs, we know we should engage with customers on a regular basis. Our organizational context make it really hard for us to do this. Our brains make it really hard for us to do this. So how do we deliberately design habits that make it easier for us to do this? And throughout the book, I wrote it as a series of habits. So first, for defining outcomes, visualizing what you know, and continuing interviewing, um, 
just a, how do you ideate effectively, um, identifying assumptions, testing assumptions, and really just looking at how do you build really robust habits in each of those areas so that you do them. Because we don't really need more books telling you this is why you should work this way. We need books that help you actually do it. Amen. Yeah. Um, so it's, I, I love this kind of idea of making it easier than easier to do it than not do it. I think that's really um, that's really clever, and it's obviously at the core of um, making habits work. Talking about customer interviews. maybe kind of blow this out a little bit more into the rest of the organization two types of company um classically consumer and and business to business b2c b2b mm -hmm. with consumer businesses it's relatively easy to kind of fish for customers that are prepared to do something um with enterprise customers is it harder or easier or are there different approaches and is that an opportunity for you then to take these ideas and start working with other parts of an organization yeah so they both have pros and cons like they're there's always this assumption that if you're b to c it's easy to talk to your customers but if you work at a b to c customer you or a b to b to c company you don't think it's easy to talk to customers. Like I've sure. talked to companies like Tesco is probably an equivalent. This didn't, this story did not come from Tesco. The story came from a US based retailer, but I'm gonna use Tesco as an example. If you work at Tesco, you would think it'd be really easy to talk to your customers because who in the UK is not a Tesco customer at some point in their life, right? Mm -hmm. We have retailers like that in the US, like our Targets, our Walmarts, our 7-Elevens, like everybody has been a customer at one of those places at some point. In Canada, Canadian Tire, um, maybe even Tim Norton's is that in Canada, right? Um, but when you work at those companies, because so many people in your business are not talking to customers regularly, it feels overwhelming. Mm -hmm. So even though like rationally, I could go outside and throw a stone and find somebody who's shopped at Target, if I work at Target, I forget that, right? So on the B2C side, yes, it is generally easier, but we our brains interfere and make it sound like it's really hard. On the B2B side, it sounds really hard because I don't know any physicians that use login software at their hospital, or I don't personally know somebody who uses accounting software. Like we, again, we make it sound really hard one of the major advantages in B2B is that you have coworkers that are on the phone with your customers all day, every day. So go make a friend, right? And here's the thing, it's we're all humans are afraid of change. We're afraid of the unknown. So when someone says, hey, go talk to a customer and you've never done it, it sounds really scary. And we, we turn a molehill into a mountain. And so a lot of the key is one of my goals in the book is just to remove those unknowns. Here's some very tangible, actionable things you can do, whether you're B2C or B2B. And I do in the book talk about the three most common ways to automate your recruiting process. The first one is just to recruit people while they're using your product or service. It works really well for B2C. It works really well for B2B when you want to recruit end users. The second one is to use your customer facing teams. So if you need to recruit, if you need to interview your buyers, you got salespeople talking to them. You have account managers talking to yeah. them right? And then the third is 
some markets are extremely hard to get in front of, right? Like I worked with a team where their customers were investment bankers. They don't have a lot of free time. They're super secretive. I worked with another company that was, their customers were clinicians. And during COVID, doctors and nurses were pretty busy people. Some of them, yeah. right? Um, some of them were, I know in the US, we stopped all elective surgeries for a while. So those folks have a lot of free time, right? Yeah. So um, the third strategy is really building long-term relationships with folks that are hard to reach. I mean, I go into a ton of detail in the book on how to do this, because I think it's a really critical, it's like the core engine that's going to drive your discovery process, is you need to make it dead simple to talk to somebody every week. Mm. It's, uh, yeah, and there's some, there's some really good um, examples of that. I do love this kind of B2B, B2C thing, though. So it's basically easier if you're not doing it. Yeah, um, exactly. The grass is always a, greener. Yeah, we did a couple of uh, masterclasses with Steve Portugal on, uh, which mm -hmm. were amazing on uh, user interviews and user research. And in one, the person that asked about how they get hold of the interviewers, uh, you know, people to people to interview was a was a consumer company. Uh, and they went through and it was like, oh, that's great, do this. Um, and then someone was like, but we're B2B, it's really hard. And yeah. in the next in the next masterclass, just by chance, the first person that was talking was B2B. And I went through this thing. First question, we're B2C. It's really hard. Here. Yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> it's funny. Just in, ways. in all of the talks that I give, I start with this slide. It's like part of my bio. And I show a map of the world with pins where I've worked with teams. And then I have some company logos and, um, but instead of doing the typical, like I'm Teresa, I'm great kind of bio to start a talk. I say, look, I know what it's like to sit in the audience and to think what you're about to hear doesn't apply to you. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at this map and I want you to realize that I've worked with teams as small as a two person founding team to as big as multinational companies with hundreds of thousands of employees in a wide variety of industries. Odds are I have worked with a company like yours and they're using this framework and these tactics. So let's flip this on the head a little bit. Instead of saying, here's why this won't work at my company, let's start thinking about how could this work at mm. my company. Um, and I like to do that because I've been that audience member. I've been that skeptical audience member of like, great, that'll work for Amazon. It's not gonna work for me. And yeah. I think we have to consciously look for what can I take out of this? Mm. Because we all yeah. think our situation is unique. I mean, you've probably heard it a million times doing what you do. like. I gotta tell you, my company's really unique. Let me tell you about this problem that we have. And you hear it and you go, I've heard this from 45 people like you this week, yeah. right? It's, um, it's really interesting with the masterclasses that we do. We you know, we'll always ask people, you know, what the problem is they're trying to solve before they arrive. And you know, sometimes I'll write you an email and it's like, oh, it's really complicated and tricky. And, blah, blah, blah. and then basically there are three maximum problems that 24 yeah. people in a room have <laughs> kind of got from different different angles and you know there's almost certainly someone that's been through it and solved it even if they've uh, struggled with it uh, for a long time so kind of touching on some of this stuff this is a it's a it's a I think kind of the revelation for me in in uh, you know what you're talking about is the kind of the habit piece and the there's some flexibility and it's those tools and those those ways of um 
making this a kind of a core part of what you're doing. And we've kind of touched on this, but basically it kind of goes horribly wrong, doesn't it? If you're smart, well-coached, bright and breezy and go, go get them and, and uh, but at, at discovery trios are then hitting people in the rest of the organization because the CEO hasn't left and yeah. they have a view, right? And the sales team haven't left and they're still there and the marketing people have got. There's always this challenge of kind of putting these ideas into practice and engaging in companies, particularly where you've got a, um, a more embedded mindset. Is that? Yeah. So one of the biggest mistakes I see leaders make is they think that, oh, my team just needs training. It is true. Mm. Your team needs training. You can't take a product trio that's used to working on a fixed roadmap, give them an outcome and expect them to have success. They need to learn how to work that way. But that's not sufficient. You, the rest of the organization also needs to shift to outcome thinking, really understand what that means, really understand what it means to have empowered teams. And the thing that's hard about organizational change is organizational change is just a collection of people changing at different rates. And the organization doesn't change till all the individuals change, right? And you go through this really long, awkward period where lots of individuals are changing at every rates, every, different rates, and it's super chaotic and messy, and it feels like everybody's failing, and you want to throw out the change that you're trying to put into place. And really, you're just not being patient long enough to get, let everybody change on the time frame they need to. Mm -hmm. And so I think for leaders, what's really important is recognizing their teams do need training but they individually have a change they have to go through themselves. And so do their peers. And so do all the other functions in the organization. And we're starting to see glimmers of this, like the Agile Manifesto came out 20 years ago and it really was looking backwards at the 20 years before that. And we're finally starting to see people talk about how the whole business needs to be agile. Um, we're also going in the wrong direction when we're seeing frameworks like SAFE where they're saying everybody in the company needs to work the same. We're like, did you read anything related to Agile mm -hmm. before drawing that conclusion? Um, but really, this change, like change is glacially slow. That's mm. the sad news, right? The sad news is it's glacially slow. And so like what I like to encourage companies is don't be dogmatic about frameworks and tools. Really look for what are the underlying principles that you're trying to instantiate and let, your, let every, all the individuals figure out how to instantiate them on their own because then they own their change. They get to drive their own change. They get to figure out how to get there on their own. They're gonna change much faster. They're gonna be much more excited about the change. And you're gonna have a different kind of chaos because you're gonna have lots of people doing lots of different things. But the upside of that is that's the type of chaos that leads to innovation, right? Whereas this trying to force everybody to do the same thing and everything's messy, that kind of chaos just leads to people leaving your company. even if they say it's for something different. Yeah, it's really powerful. So I think we've gone way over here, which is um, fine. <laughs> to just give us a little bit more, because I know you've spoken about this, that the um, outcomes, outputs, because um, this isn't just a product thing at all. This is, a, this is a, an organizational, a leadership thing. And it's, it's people like Josh Shiden been talking about it, you've been talking about it. What's the biggest challenge there? And what's the, what's the kind of, what's the, what's the, what's the hook? Um, and why does it go wrong? 
Yeah, I mean, it goes wrong because it's a mindset shift. So people adopt the tactics like the format OKRs, but they don't make the mindset shift. So what's the mindset shift? In an output world, we're assuming we can predict the future. We're putting together five-year strategic plans. We're working on a 12-month roadmap. We can say today where we're standing, we can predict what we should build three months from now, six months from now, nine months from now. And we're confident those are the right outputs. Mm. What's wrong with that? We know now that we can instrument things. We're often wrong about the outputs. The world is constantly changing. Hopefully 2020 gave everybody a really healthy dose of how quickly the world can change. But we also see it with new competitors disrupting the market. We see it with new technology changing customer expectations. Even at your own company's releases, every time we release something, it has an impact on the market and on how our customers behave and how mm. our customers think, right? So there's constant change around us. So this shift from outputs to outcomes is saying, look, we can't predict what outputs are gonna be the right in the future, but we can do is we can look across our business and our marketplace and say, this is the impact we need those outputs to have. These are, and that's what an outcome is. An outcome is measuring that impact. And so instead of saying, I'll, I use Netflix a lot as an example, because people around the world are familiar with Netflix. Um, instead of saying, okay, build feature A, B, and C, we know that over the next year, probably for the lifetime of our business, subscriber retention is a key metric, right? And so we can say, look, we don't know what to build. We just know that you need to iterate and, and discover how to increase subscriber retention. Now that's a business outcome and product teams only indirectly affect that. So the product team needs to develop a theory of how is the product going to support subscriber retention. And it's probably some combination of things like engagement with the product, how, how much you're watching Netflix, and then your satisfaction level, right? Mm -hmm. And so for a lot of consumer products, that translation from the business outcome to the product outcome is often some combination of engagement and satisfaction. Those are metrics that a product team can directly influence. And so you can tell a product team for the next 12 months, you need to increase engagement by this much. And then you give them the freedom to go figure out how to do that. Very interesting. Brilliant. Uh, so much to think about. So much to think about. Um, your website is producttalk.org, correct? Yep. yep. Everything is uh, everything there and uh, is there and uh, more. Um, we could talk forever, and I know we've uh, we've gone over time, but uh, for which I apologise. But uh, um, fascinating. Is there anything that you'd like to leave as a parting thought? Um, what what would you do if you could change one thing in the world magically? Maybe you can. Ooh, that's a great question. I think it really is tied to this outcomes piece because I think good discovery starts with a good desired outcome. And I think it's also one of the hardest things for businesses to do because historically our business practices were all about creating a false sense of certainty and predicting the future. And if we just have a good five-year strategic plan, everything will magically happen, right? Um, which is also why we ask our sales teams to forecast what they're gonna sell when they haven't even talked to a prospect yet. Um, so I think that mindset <laughs> shift would be ideal, would be the one thing. Um, but for listeners, I think the one thing I would encourage you to do is, um, Mark already mentioned my website. I did write the book specifically to help your teams learn how to work this way. Teams mm. really do need support. Um, but I would also say um, leaders need to recognize they play a critical role in this, and it's not just about their teams changing. 
Hmm. And that's, I'm excited to explore more on that at the Business of Software conference. Don't forget, you can get your ticket to BossConf Fall Online 2021 by visiting businessofsoftware.org slash fall. We've already announced a handful of the experts joining us to lead breakout sessions, and we have more speaker announcements coming up. Head over to businessofsoftware.org slash fall and save your space now for three days of in-depth learning, networking and inspiration on 27th to 29th of September. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.